I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Did you know, on average, heating your home makes up 82% of your energy bill? Installing a smart thermostat could save you a lot of money and be good for the planet. Honeywell Home have been making the home smarter and more comfortable for over a hundred years and their trusted smart thermostats help you get control wherever you are. And because they work with Google and Alexa, you can simply change the heating with your voice. Installing a smart thermostat doesn't have to be confusing or time consuming, so why not visit getconnected.honeywellhome.com to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Pocket podcast sponsored by Honeywell Home by Residio, making the smart home simpler. We're way past the days of Tesla being the only kid on the block when it comes to electric vehicles. And this week it was the turn of Mini to showcase its electric car efforts. And Pocket editor Chris Hall, who's joining me later, went to the launch of Mini to find out more. Later on in the podcast, I talked to the sound mixer who has worked on films such as Gravity, Netflix, Our Planet, Baby Driver and Batman Begins about how technology has changed the film music business over the last couple of decades. And Pocketland contributing editor Cam Bunton tells us his top three action cams if you're heading out over the summer and want to record your adventures. So Chris, back to you. Tell me more about Mini going electric. Well, we knew this was going to happen. It's been on the cards for a while, and it just happens to coincide with Mini's 60th anniversary, which is this year. Um, and the company has been happy to say that it was founded in 1969, a result of the Suez uh, Suez crisis that meant that we needed a car that was slightly more fuel efficient. So it's a very nice message to go along with the fact that now people are trying to move away from using so many fossil fuels, and electric seems to be the answer. So the new Mini Electric is everything that you expect a Mini to be. It's actually built into the body of the Mini hatch, so it looks pretty much exactly the same. And the only real exterior differences that you'll see are a couple of badges on the on the sides and the back to say that it's electric. And the filler cap that you'd normally pop open to put in the fuel is now where you'll find the plug so that you can plug it in and charge it up. So it is very much exactly what you'd expect a electric Mini to be. And so is that kind of they've they've not changed the drivetrain they've just kept it they've just effectively electrified the original design and car rather than starting from scratch trying to rebuild something completely new and and different. Well yeah it's a, it's a bit of a mixture they have they haven't done what some manufacturers have done which is start from scratch and say here is a completely bespoke electric car which costs a lot of money in research and development has a new platform and all of those sorts of things instead they have they are working with their existing platform and the battery is actually in the floor between the front and rear seats it's a t-shaped battery um, it's not a huge battery um, and i think that's probably one of the side effects of using an existing car model but one of the important things about this design is that Mini is assembling it in their plant in Oxford alongside the other models. So instead of having to create a new plant that they're going to use to build the electric car specifically or a new line, they're doing it all in the same place. And this should mean that they can scale the production to meet the demand and be able to 
respond very rapidly if say the electric car isn't selling so well then the production will just continue and it will be the fuel versions and vice versa as well so they may avoid some of the production problems that other manufacturers seem to have encountered by using their existing resources and in many ways using a lot of the same parts and components rather than starting from scratch now you talked about a smaller battery what's the range on 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 the mini well, this is a 32.6 kilowatt battery, kilowatt hour battery, and that's pretty small. Um, that's that's kind of around the same size as some of the first generation electric cars that we saw. Um, it's, it's about the same size as the old Kia Soul. I think it's quite close to the first Nissan Leaf. Uh, the range that Mini is saying you'll get is somewhere between 124 and 144 miles. And this is likely to be the point at which people say, that doesn't sound like very much. No, no, it doesn't, does it? I suppose that's it's kind of very similar to the BMW i3, and that's quite a city kind of. Is it a city runner? Is that where they're hoping? Well, yeah. I mean, the BMW i3 is a good example because this is where it's sharing some of the components. The motor that's actually driving the Mini Electric has come from the BMW i3. Um, it's a very advanced motor, and it produces a lot of power, and that means that you're going to get a sort of sprightly drive, um, and all of that. The, the the thing that people know about or are or used to from electric cars is that you can put your foot down and get the immediate delivery of the power. It's not like Tesla that's just going to dump the whole lot out really, really quickly. But it's, a, it's I mean, it's a Mini and it drives like a Mini. It'll do 0 to, 6, uh, 0 to 62 miles per hour in 7.3 seconds. But Mini also say that a lot of the speed is weighted towards the, the lower range of that. So the 0 to 30 mile per hour time is is quite rapid and that sort of leans on this feeling that driving a mini is a bit like driving a go-kart very immediate it's very precise it's very fun and as you say it is a it's an it's an urban car and it's it's a small compact car it's going to be great for cities not only from the zero emissions but it's going to be easy to maneuver through traffic easy to park because of its size and these cars have over the past few years past 10 years perhaps since the redesign been selling like hotcakes and you know that's because the design is great there's a lot of charm about it they're good fun to drive and do you think i mean that's one of the questions i had was it's it's a very popular car it's been sort of the number one seller for a number of years do you think this is people will will embrace the electric version and and, and opt for that or do you think they'll kind of still want that petrol head kind of cooper s experience i well there's okay there's a couple of things here the first one is as you mentioned cooper s this uh, the, the Mini Electric actually has Cooper S branding on the back, and that's because they're kind of putting it as a setting them setting them up together on the same sort of level for the same amount of power and the drive experience that you'll get. But a lot of people are buying these cars to use as small commuter cars, and and you know just doing short trips to the supermarket and stuff like that. I don't think anybody's really buying a Mini and then driving to the south of France to go on a on a family camping holiday. So it's very <laughs> different to some of the larger cars out there. So I can't really, I mean, if as long as it lives up to the promise of driving like a Mini, and that's what everybody is saying, then I think it will be amazingly popular because it is the right design and it's the right sort of size. It's a brand that people are familiar with and it's, it's the Mini experience that people already know and love. So there are a lot of people who are driving them for 30 minutes a day to do a short commute down to an office. And for those people, this is going to be a perfect car. Okay, you've sold me. When can I go and buy one? Yes, that's the catch as well. <laughs> there, are, you can put in a pre-order now or reserve your car, and that's that will ask you for a five hundred pound deposit. 
but they're not actually going to be available on the roads until March 2020. Still to come, Cam talks us through the best action cameras on the market today. So it's probably no surprise that my top picks include GoPro, and there's a good reason for that. The GoPro has long been the leader in this market, and that's because their ecosystem is really strong. That moment when you feel the hairs on the back of your neck rise up because you're watching a scary movie is rarely just because of the pictures on the screen. The sound in films and TV shows we enjoy help further immerse us into the experience. But what's involved and how have sound mixers and composers had to adapt to a world where one minute you might be watching a film on a huge screen in the cinema and the next on your phone on the train on the way home? Gareth Cousins has been working in the industry since the 1980s and worked on an array of music, film and TV projects from Oscar-winning Gravity to the latest natural history documentary series Our Planet, on Netflix with David Attenborough. We caught up with the leading sound mixer at Grove Studios in Chiswick to find out more. How did you get into the business? Well, I was very lucky. I mean, I think everybody that's, that's ever has a story about how they got into music has, has a story of how lucky they were to get into music. For me, I, I applied for a job at Abbey Road in 1986. Uh, didn't expect to get it, so I also applied for a job at the BBC. Um, as it happens, the BBC weren't hiring that, that year. Um, but even though I was disappointed about that, I was thrilled when I got a letter from, from Abbey Road asking me for, in, for an interview uh, with Ken Townsend, who was an, an industry uh, legend. Um, he was the guy who was the technical engineer when the Beatles were recording, so I already knew his name. I went in, and because I came from a technical background, once again, there's a bit of luck, uh, he, he, he gave me an opportunity to, to, to have a month's trial as a technical engineer. But within that month, I was I was I was transferred onto the operational side of things as an assistant engineer, tape op as it used to be called, and uh, really never looked back. I was offered a contract straight away. Um, there were less people working at the studios, and Abbey Road now has a, a vast number of people working there. There was less people. They really need, needed more staff, and I was in the right place at the right time. And so that led you on to working with people like Chesney Hawks and and other things. Yeah, um, I mean during during the time I was there, I was I I worked on across many, many, many very, very interesting projects. The first two projects I worked on as an assistant engineer um, was an album with Susie and the Banshees um, and an album with Toya. So this, this is 1986, so you can see the generation we're working in. Um, and they were uh, fabulous, fabulous artists to, to work with as, as a young assistant. Both, um, both the engineers I worked with, because as an assistant I wasn't engineering, both the engineers I worked with were very generous with their time and... Um, a guy called Hayden Bendel, a guy called Ian Grimble, and Mike Edges was the producer of both, who went on to produce lots of seminal albums, Manic Street Peaches, Preachers, and things like that. Um, so it, it, was, it, was a good, it was a good opportunity for me, and I just grabbed it. And what do you think your favourite project you've worked on so far? I know you've, you've gone from pop to classical yeah. to movie soundtracks to, to lots of things. What's yeah. been the sort of one that stuck in your mind? It's interesting, really, because I think sometimes the things that you mean the most to you are often the things that no one's ever heard and it may be for that very reason that you may it may be because the connection you made with the artist is very personal and real um and maybe there's a vulnerability there that you actually there's something about the person that you really really like which actually means that for some reason they don't then go on to have this huge career so there's, so there's been there have been careers there have been projects like that in my career um there are projects that I get a lot of pride out of because of the success they had or because they sounded good for me, to my ears. Um, 
you know, you always want it to sound nice. You want, and you always want to have an audience for what you do, not because you need the adoration or the, the accolades that come with it, because you want to know what you've done had some value. It was worthwhile in some way. Um, so uh, I was very, very proud of the Vanessa May album that we did in 1993 with Mike Producing. Um, we'd created a, we sort of had developed this 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 this, this style called crossover, which. Um, Bands like Sky had done a bit of before, but the idea is of taking orchestras and drum beats and electronica and dance and putting them all together with a violinist hadn't really been done before, and it felt like we were breaking something and it could have gone wrong, completely wrong, and it didn't, and it was successful. Um, so that made me very proud at the time. Um, I think, um, funnily enough, of the film projects I've worked on, and I've, I was obviously very proud to have worked on Gravity, which was. Um, you know, hugely successful, and I, I I got some personal accolades out of it, which I, I say it's not the reason you do it, but it's nice to know that people are listening, yeah. and if your peers recognise it, you feel like you've done something right. But um, just recently, I worked on a project called Ophelia, um, which um, we're sitting in a studio called British Grove at the moment, which is where I recorded the score and mixed it, and um, I'm really really proud of the score because the musicianship, the composition for a start from Steve Price is absolutely incredible. Um, the tunes, the, the themes, the way it supports the, the action of the film um, is amazing. But beyond that, I was very proud of, of, of the interaction we had with the musicians. It's a very organic score. You can reach out and touch the instruments. And that's the way it's been written. And that's the way we recorded it. And I was quite proud of the fact I was able to, to achieve that. Um, you always feel like you've got somewhere else to go. You always feel like there's another mountain to climb, there's another peak to, to, to reach. And if you don't feel that everything that you're doing is one bit one better or one different or one more step further on than the last, you feel like you don't feel like you're achieving anything. And I felt with that we did. It was um, we'd we'd taken a step on. So I was very 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 proud of that. Now looking around the studios today, you've you've shown us sort of old, very old sort of mixing decks and things that's like Sergeant Pepper's mixing deck and there's tape machines and there's there's also that hugely massive console which looks yeah. like it's got more dials and buttons on it than I'd ever know what to do with. I'm sure you're very afraid with it. And then you're, at the same time you've got Macs and 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 sort of Peter, you know, computers there. Yeah. How do you feel that technology has changed over your over your career and has it changed it for the better has it made your job easier well it's a, it's a really interesting question for me because I, I feel incredibly fortunate that I, starting in 1986 I started at the beginning of the digital revolution that um, digital audio was just becoming a thing but yet I had managed to work with real orchestras I'd recorded using real equipment real desks I, I, the first five ten years of my career a lot of it was using tape um, so all of those techniques that you learn then of using real outboard gear, compressors, valve microphones, valve processors, Pultec EQs, I mean, whatever you can name, you can think of all the brands that people like to use. I was in a studio that had all that stuff, and I was able to learn it. So that when it came to using digital equipment, if you're using emulations of those sorts of devices, you knew how to use them. You knew what they were there for. You didn't slap a compressor on because that's what everyone else does. You slapped a compressor on because you knew what you were trying to achieve by putting that in there. Um, the same thing goes for digital audio. Instead of recording on tape, you're now recording in a medium which could be manipulated afterwards. It's instantly recallable. If you mix in a digital environment, you can recall it instantly. Um, so I think the two hands complete, the two sides of the equation completely marry. I think the fact that you have old technology, you have analog technology, you have musicians which are analog technology, 
you have all of those things available to you. And in the film world, we actually do have access to all of this stuff. We, we are able to use. We're in a fortunate position that on a big Hollywood film, for example, chances are there is a budget for a real orchestra if that's what you need. You don't put it on if you don't need it. You can use real musicians. You can interact. You can also be in a studio where you're able to do these things. For example, you can be at Abbey Road, where, where, I, where I trained. You can be at British Grove, where, where I do a lot of mixing, a lot of recording. Um, and you can choose which aspects of those technologies you want to use. You can use the real... Um, uh, Real, the real analogue equipment when you need to. And I was going to say, do you find that there are times where you just use a Mac mm. and you don't need to worry about the orchestra and other times you, yeah. you you have to do it the other way around? You have to use it. Absolutely. And, you know, that's, I mean, the one end of the equation is the fact that, you, that you, if you are working on a big Hollywood film, I mean, we use Macs because we need to, because of, because of the um, technology, the, the, the processing that we need is there. But it actually works back the other way, towards the other end of the scale, the lower budget projects. For example, if I do a composition project, it, it, it's very like, unlikely to be as big as anything of the film world that I work on as a score mixer or, or as a recording engineer. Um, so if I'm working on all those smaller budget projects, I need to be able to create something that sounds incredible, but for, for, less, for less resources, for less money. So I don't have musician time, I don't have um, uh, money to go into big studios, but I can do all of that within a Mac. And, that, and um, I, I, can, I can use virtual instruments, I can use plugins versions of the, of the of the software that I like to use of, of the hardware that I like to use so yes the answer is that you can do it all within the box and in fact you can do the whole job within the box to a very high level I mean you're obviously when you're composing you know that you're not going to be putting a real orchestra on so you have to make sure that what you're doing sounds realistic or appropriate anyway but um, you can do that you can do that and quite a lot of people do and that, that's 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 you know the majority of music that's produced for film and TV has has a large element of it produced within within a computer. And do you feel that when you does your does your approach change depending on where the output's going to be? So with Ophelia, for example, it's obviously going to be seen in cinemas and mm. theatres around the world. Does that approach change to say when you're working on uh, Warhammer, which is another project you've worked on, which is a, a, an app on on the iPad? Yeah. Does does your approach change for cinema to the apps to TV? Do you, does the sound change, or yeah. is it one fits one size fits all and hope for the best? You can you can think cinematically um, when you're working on a smaller project, but you have to be practical about that. So, for example, on an app, you know that at best you can be hearing it in stereo, and in effect, because of the way people use use apps, you probably almost hearing it in mono. So you've got to make create something that's going to jump out of the speakers. Um, you're not going to be able to go, do anything immersive or surround unless you actually fake some way of doing that. You actually create music that feels like it's doing that. So you have to, yes, you have to write that appropriately. You have to mix appropriately. I mean, when I do when I write, I have the good fortune to also be a, a score mixer, so I can mix the stuff to the same standard as a Hollywood film would be mixed because that's what I do with, with my day job. Sure. Um, and that's a nice position to be in. But you can't just trick everything. You can't polish it up when it can't be polished. It's really <laughs> like that. Um, and you you have to make sure that the, the the source material you're working with is good enough to start with. But we're you know once again we're very we're, we're a very lucky point of history where you can you can do that. If you can you can learn sample libraries. You can generate sounds from scratch. You can get one musician in rather than rather than a hundred, and you can work with them. You, there are ways to make things sound organic and real if that's what you need to do. Quite often it's electronics you're doing anyway, so you're thinking differently then. And do you think with, you know, we talk, we've, 
we've just seen Apple, for example, announce the Mac, um, the Mac Pro. There's you know new software is coming along all the time. What do you think the future, you know, in ten years' time, if you're still doing mm. this job and you're still enjoying it, what do you think your creation process will be like? Do you think it'll be very much the same, or is is it? Are we on the cusp of something amazing that's about to happen? Well, I think we're always on the cusp of something amazing, and and in fact, you have to have. I, I'm very optimistic about about music in that way i always feel that if it isn't then we have to make sure it's going to happen we have, we have to find some way of doing it. but in terms of technology yes we have, i mean that 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 event horizon has just happened i mean the mac pro that's come out i haven't had a chance to play with one yet i don't know many people that do but uh, just looking at the spec of it it's so way beyond anything we need right now the high-end model is going to have so much headroom, so much processing power, that we're going to be able to do something incredible with it. And the software manufacturers are going to realise that. In fact, they already have, of course. And they'll be writing stuff. They'll be, they'll be giving us opportunities. And every time that they, a new bit of software is created or a new capability is invented, we have the opportunity to use our imaginations to utilise that in a way that the manufacturers wouldn't have imagined. So we can be more original. We can make more things happen. We can we can try and push the edge of the boundary. We can try and make it so that they're catching up with us. We're not we're not catching up with them, um, because it's exciting to do that. It's and interesting. Have you, have you found over your career that the stuff that you were creating at the beginning, say mm. Gravity, which was two thousand and twelve, mm. if you tried to do the Gravity soundtrack today, would mm. would you've would it have been easier, or would it have Technically, taken it, a different slant? Technically, it would have been easier, probably, because we, I mean, we, 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 we used multiple computers across that to, to be able to be able to, to do the mix. But um, creatively, I don't imagine we would have done much different because we felt like we were we were inventing something new at the time. I mean, Steve had a vision. The composer, Steve Price, had had a vision of how he wanted that score to sound, and nothing about it was was standard. Everything was original. The the, the director, Alfonso Cuarón, demanded that as well. He, he, he had his own vision um, and my job was somehow to make those two things work that uh, I was I was in charge of the sound of it that the, you know the, the the music production if you like the the mixing of it the recording of it to a certain extent but uh, um, and we felt all of us felt that we did the best job we possibly could that we never ever turned an idea down we always tried something Steve was always trying out new ideas with writing and with, with I mean, he likes processing things as well. He'll play with things, make things happen. Um, he would, and everybody that was involved in that wanted it to be something original and amazing. And I don't think anything else sounds like it right now. And you wouldn't want it to. That that score's been done. That opportunity happened. There's not many scores that you'd be able to do that with. There was no sound in space, so we had to create all the sound. That what a wonderful brief. I think. That was a fixed point in time. We did that, it happened, and the technology wouldn't have changed anything about it now, I don't think. Apart from, we we would probably use just less computers to make it happen. Right. Um, but moving forwards, that's exactly, I mean, you know, we've done that now. That was seven years ago. And we have to make the next thing happen that no one else knew that you could do. Or even if no one else reacts to it like that, we have to feel that's what we're doing. You've got to try and keep pushing the boundary. You've got to try and be original. And everything you do, you've got to try and find a different angle at it and a different way of approaching it to make sure that you're doing something that is original. Otherwise, you know, you might as well, you know, not even be bothering. There's plenty of people out that can do it and loads of people are doing amazing work. But they do it their way. They do it differently. We've all no doubt been inspired by the video of a dude doing amazing things on a surfboard or an epic bike trick captured on a GoPro. 
While the company still dominates the market in terms of action cameras, there are plenty of other alternatives available at an array of price points. But are they any good? And are they good enough to make PocketLink contributing editor Cam Bunton's top three action camera list? Living in North Wales on the edge of Snowdonia National Park, Cam is no stranger to adventure and has been testing action cams for PocketLint for the last couple of years. Whether you're heading out to capture an adventure or just want something to film your beach holiday this summer, these are the best action cameras on the market today. So Cam, what's your pick at number three? So it's probably no surprise that my top picks include GoPro, and there's a good reason for that. The GoPro has long been the leader in this market, and that's because their ecosystem is really strong. They have a load of different accessories and mounts that you can put them on so you can attach them to your helmet or your bike or your car or your chest or your rucksack or you can just hold them in your hand and also they have some really strong software for mobile as well so one of their cool features is called quick stories that automatically pulls in feet, uh, video that you've recorded and just sets it to music cuts in all the action automatically for you so it's really easy to shoot really easy to edit and my number three pick is the GoPro Hero 7 White. And the reason is because this is a really fantastic option for somebody who's not quite sure about action cameras but wants to try them out without spending too much money. They're about 150, 160 pounds, and they'll do all the basic stuff that you would expect from a GoPro, and it'll fit in all the right accessories as well. Shoot in 1440p up to 60 frames per second, which is great for a little camera. And also you can shoot 10 megapixel stills as well. And so if that's obviously the entry level, I think it's about £160, isn't it? So if you wanted to spend a little bit more, what would you go for at number two? So number two, I'm going to say is the Hero 7 Black. And this is GoPro's all singing, all dancing camera. It costs roughly double, slightly more than double the amount that you would pay for the white model. But it has all the top specs that you would expect to find in the top of the line action camera so you can shoot in 4k video at up to 60 frames per second you can shoot 240 frames per second slow-mo at full hd it takes hdr photos but one of the most interesting and probably one of the most impressive features is something called hypersmooth now this essentially uses an algorithm and the electronic stabilization built into the camera to create smooth footage so even if you're running along you're not holding it in any kind of gimbal you're riding your bike over bumps, as is often the case when you're doing all kinds of action sports, your footage will come out much smoother than it will have done in the past with a GoPro camera. And this applies to a feature called Hyperlapse as well, which is sort of the same, but it shoots a time-lapse that's really, really smooth. And of course, being a GoPro, it's waterproof up to 10 meters as well. You'll pay about 330 pounds for it at the moment, but it is the best GoPro on the market currently. Now, are you going to tell me it's a one, two, three GoPro, or has another company come in at the top spot and ruffled things up a bit? So actually, yeah, as you said, another company has come in at the top spot and ruffled things up a bit. And I think that's a good thing because I think GoPro is kind of dominating the market for a while. But my top pick at the moment, purely from a hardware and performance point of view, is the DJI Osmo Action. Now, this is about £325, so it's not hideously expensive, but it has some really incredible features. It can shoot 4K HDR footage, as well as shooting the 4K 60 frames per second. And again, it has that 
algorithm-based smooth or stabilization footage. So when you're running along with it or on your bike and you look back at the footage afterwards, it's almost like you've been shooting with a handheld gimbal where in fact it's all done processed inside the camera using some clever technology. And one of my favorite things about the Osmo Action versus the GoPro is that it has two color screens on it. So it has a, a screen on the front that takes up about half of the space. So if you're shooting yourself, you can frame it properly and you can actually see where you are in that frame, as well as having a really big, quite long aspect ratio touchscreen on the back, which is bigger and easier to see and easier to use thanks to a really nice user interface on the back as well. And the battery inside is bigger and lasts longer than the GoPro 2. And then of course, DJI has its own strong ecosystem of accessories, most of them including gimbals and flying drones. So it's a really strong camera made by a company that really knows what it's doing when it comes to shooting video and photos and stabilized footage. Well, that's it for this week's show. New episodes of the Pocket podcast will arrive every Friday with more news, interviews and buying guides for you to enjoy. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please let your friends and colleagues know. And please rate us on a podcast platform you're listening on. It really will help others know you like it too. Until next Friday, pip pip. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.